Um, our passage today tells the story of a man named Stephen who was radically saved by the grace of God and whose life displayed the glories of his Savior, as you could see in the passage I just read. Contrasted with Stephen are the religious leaders of Israel, the council. These are hard-hearted men who proudly reject Jesus, determined to save themselves by their own righteousness. And so they missed the righteousness of God. I have two points I want to draw out of this passage today. The first point, I believe, is, is one of the central themes of Stephen's sermon. And it is this. Do not reject the deliverer God sent. The second point was preached by Stephen's actions in verses 54 through 60. As he reacted to the hatred, the rage, and the persecution, and the martyrdom by the council against him. And the second point is is this. Boldly continue on in Christ, even when people reject you for it. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, First, I want to set the scene a little bit, set the stage of the situation that's happening. Um, First, who is Stephen? And why does he give this speech? Um, So in chapter 6, we learn a number of things about Stephen. And I'm just going to briefly touch on these. Uh, In in verses 1 through 3, we learn that he was chosen by the apostles as one of the seven men to be in charge of caring for some of the widows in the church. In verse 5, we see he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, we see he was full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 10 of chapter 6, we see that his opponents were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And in verse 15, we see that the council looked at him and everyone could see that his face was like the face of an angel. I mean, the, the, the presence of God was, on his, was in his life. You could just tell that he knew God. This man walked with God powerfully. In addition to his speech in Acts uh, 7... Um, Excuse me. Uh, Also in his speech in Acts chapter 7, Stephen demonstrates an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, In his speech, he directly quotes ten different passages by memory uh, from the Old Testament. Stephen clearly knew and loved God's Word. And because his opponents could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, they devised a plan to put up false witnesses to accuse Stephen. And I'll just, note, I'll just mention, by the way, right here, that um, these men who, who prided themselves on keeping the law were, in fact, right here, breaking the law. Uh, because the Ninth Commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were bearing false witness against their neighbor, making up false accusations to bring against Stephen. Okay, so what... What were the accusations against Stephen? Well, they bring four of them, and we see those in verses 11 through 13. He speaks blasphemous words against Moses. He speaks blasphemous words against God. He speaks against the temple, and he speaks against the law. Those are the accusations they bring. And then in in Acts 7, verse 1, the high priest turns to Stephen and says, Are these things so? And then Stephen begins his speech. And I'm just going to cover some highlights. Um, In the first 
30 verses or so of his speech, he lays out a sweeping history of, of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament. And he masterfully uses that history, not so much to defend himself, but to make a compelling defense of faith in Christ. And also to bring a scathing indictment against the council where he exposes their sin of prideful unbelief. So he really turns the tables on them and says to them, you guys are the ones who have hardened your hearts against God and are in prideful unbelief. And my summary of his warning to the council is this. Do not reject the deliverer God sent. I think this valuable is... Excuse me, I think this uh, warning is valuable to us today. Whether or not we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. For those of us who have believed in Christ, we may be, at, um, we may be tempted at times to resist Jesus and the Holy Spirit, even in perhaps more subtle ways. For those of us who have not believed in Christ, then we need to receive Him and to accept Him as our Savior and no longer Resist him. Okay, so my first uh, main point. Do not reject the deliverer God sent. Um, A little analogy for you. Imagine that I was trapped inside my house and it's on fire. It's engulfed in flames, burning down all around me. Just when it seems that there is no hope that I will escape, miraculously a firefighter breaks down the front door Using his expertise and his special equipment, he makes a way through the flames. One single path of escape. He runs in through the flames to find me in my kitchen. He yells to me, Come on! I'm getting you out of here! There's one way out. The way I just opened up. Follow me out! Now imagine I look back at him, offended that he thinks I need help. Why would I need his help? I refuse to take him at his word that there is only one way out and that he can bring me out safely. I bet I can find my own way, a better way. What if I was so determined to prove I could save myself that I ended up dying in that fire? How tragic would that be? Yet, that analogy describes the human condition apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are separated from God because of our sin. And we are on our way to hell. But in our pride, the human heart is quick to reject the deliverer God sent. The Savior He sent to us. So who was the deliverer God sent? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen uses uses the story of Moses, uh, who God sent to rescue his people out of Egypt, out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt. So, the deliverer God sent in the Exodus account was Moses. But ultimately, Moses was a flashing neon sign pointing to God's chosen deliverer who would come in the future. He was pointing to Jesus. Look at verse 37 in Acts chapter 7. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, 
God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So this is important to understand, that Stephen is using the account of Moses to show Christ to his hearers. He shows that just as their fathers rejected Moses, so they are rejecting Christ. So the account of Moses here in Acts 7 becomes a parable for the delivering work of Jesus Christ and Israel's rejection of him. Here are just a few of the parallels that Stephen highlights in this passage. Moses was sent by God to rescue God's people. Jesus was sent by God to rescue God's people. Moses was sent by God as a ruler and a deliverer. So was Jesus. Moses was rejected and disowned by the people of Israel. So was Jesus. Moses led them out of Egypt while performing wonders and signs or, um, or attesting miracles. Jesus performed great miracles to prove, to demonstrate that he was from God. Moses received living oracles from God to pass along to the people the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus delivered to us God's word, which eventually, of course, ended up in the writing of the entire New Testament through his apostles. So, Stephen was pointing his hearers to Jesus, the deliverer that God sent. Okay, so what does the deliverer come to rescue us from? Why does he come to save us? Why do we need rescued? Moses delivered the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. But Jesus delivers us from the bondage to sin and spiritual death. Verse 32, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 7. This is the account where Moses... um, where, this is the account where God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. God speaking in verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What made the place he was standing holy ground? He was in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. The place was holy because the presence of God was there. God is the one who made it holy. And here is our fundamental problem. God is holy. We are sinful. We are not holy. The sinfulness of mankind is showcased throughout Stephen's speech, as you're going to see, as the Israelites rebelled against God again and again. In our fallen sinfulness, we are cut off from the presence of the Lord. Our sin has separated us from fellowship with God. And so, we are out of place in God's presence. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they were cut off from the former intimacy they had had with God. They died spiritually in that moment and introduced sin and death into the world. So every one of us has a major, major problem. Apart from Christ, we are wretched sinners who deserve the righteous wrath of a holy God. Moses shook with fear in God's presence and would not venture to look. God is so holy that man cannot see his face and live. We are undone in his presence. Like Isaiah In Isaiah 6, verse 5, we must say, Woe is me, I am ruined, 
Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Apart from God's deliverer, we have no hope. Apart from God's deliverer, we are dead in our sins and are headed for eternal punishment. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can do to save ourselves. All our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. We cannot measure up. We cannot be good enough. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 34. God's still speaking to Moses. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. God sees. Notice the language in that verse. I have seen. I have heard. I have come down. I will send. This was God's idea to rescue His people. Into our misery and bondage, into our hopeless situation, without a single way to make ourselves right before God, into this desperation... God sends His Deliverer, Jesus. Jesus, the God-man. Fully God and fully man. Because no one else could pay for our sins. He came to the earth. The only one who could rescue us. He paid for our sins on the cross. So that we could be completely forgiven. Washed clean counted righteous in God's sight, given eternal life, and restored to an intimate relationship with God through His Holy Spirit that He has given to dwell within us. So, in what ways did the people of Israel reject God's deliverers? There's a lot of sin we're going to see in this passage I firmly believe all Scripture is written for our instruction. And so I I hope and pray and I want us to learn from the example of Israel and from the example of the council that we would learn how not to be. Okay? So how did did, uh, the people of Israel reject God's deliverer? Number one, prideful rebellion against the deliverer's authority. Look at verse 35. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? This Moses is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer. Notice their attitude. Who put you in charge of me? I don't need your help. We can be offended that God says to us that we can't save ourselves. In our pride, we don't want to admit our desperate need. And also, our sinful tendency is to question God and His ways. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? We tend towards cynical unbelief. The first part of verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to Him, but repudiated Him. So they were just simply unwilling to be obedient. They thrust him aside. 
in the sinfulness of our flesh. We don't want Jesus to be the sovereign, ruling Lord of all. Because we want to be the sovereign, ruling Lord of our own lives. There can only be one Lord of our life. The second way that the people of Israel rejected God's deliverer, returning to the bondage that he delivered them from. Look at the second part of verse 39. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. God had just led them out of Egypt with great power, with miraculous signs and wonders, parting the Red Sea, amazing things where God showcased his power and deliverance. Yet the moment that things were not going as they hoped, they forgot God's great power and deliverance. Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain where he was receiving the law of God. And they wanted to go back to their old ways, back to the bondage of Egypt. We too can forget God's great power and deliverance. We can forget our first love for him and how he set us free and gave us life and joy and peace. Our flesh perhaps begins to crave the old familiar worldliness we left behind. Though the pleasures of sin are fleeting and deadly, our minds sometimes play tricks on us and make them seem so appealing. Don't let your heart turn back to Egypt. Those things are death. If you are a believer, there's nothing there for you now. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. He is the only one who can satisfy your soul. You will not find fulfillment. You will not find joy anywhere else. The third way that Israel rejected God's deliverer, they made false gods. Um, Or we might say they turned to counterfeit deliverers. False deliverers. Okay, now, hang with me here. Don't check out. You know, today we may not actually make little physical idols or images that we bow down and worship. But please understand, there is a powerful temptation within us to create idols. We might not call them idols. But they are counterfeit deliverers that we turn to. Maybe it's our own works. Maybe it's money or pleasure or any other created thing. Look at verse 40. The Israelites were saying to Aaron, and this this floors me, they say to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. So they have this desire to have all the answers. They're uncomfortable not knowing the full picture. They didn't want to wait and trust in God's word and God's promises to them. They wanted something tangible, something they can touch and see. They wanted to live by sight, not by faith. They had this desire for control. Give me a God that I can control, that I can create. We also see their, their sinful tendency to attempt to conform God to the desires of their flesh. See, they worshiped this golden calf by getting drunk 
and by committing sexual immorality with each other. Verse 41, At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol. So they fashioned a god of their own making, rather than in faith submitting to God's revelation of himself to them. I want to read a couple verses from the account when this happens in Exodus 32. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to flip over there. It's the second book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, verse 32. I think it's really important to see this. Exodus 32, verse 3. This is the account of the golden calf that we just read about in in Acts 7. Verse 3. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And hear hear their words when the calf is brought to them. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who um, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This calf, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And he actually uses the word Yahweh, the name of the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Imagine this. Aaron proclaims the worship of the calf to be a feast to Yahweh. Worshiping a golden calf with drunkenness and sexual immorality, all done in the name of Yahweh. In our world today, there are, and there will always be, teachers trying to sell you every version of religion or faith or spirituality imaginable. And it grieves me to say that many times they will package it as being worship of Jesus. They will use the very name of Jesus to lead people away into idolatry. They will enthusiastically and winsomely present false teachings to you and label it as the gospel of Jesus. We see this in Exodus 32. And I want to show you a couple more, uh, two more passages to this effect in the New Testament. I think this is so important for us to be aware of. You don't have to turn to this one, but in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Count on it. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They will exploit you with false words. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 7 for the next one. Matthew 7, I I want you to 
it's good for our eyeballs to see this on the page. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And skip down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, listen to their words, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Notice all the things here that they're doing in the name of Jesus. No doubt, this would be fairly persuasive. They're doing these amazing things in the name of Jesus. And so there would be the temptation to think it's legit. They, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons. In the name of Jesus, they're casting out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Miracles in the name of Jesus. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me, you people who ignore my commands. These people don't even know Jesus. And yet, supposedly, they are doing miracles, casting out demons, prophesying it in the name of Jesus. Amazing. One more in 2 Corinthians, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I encourage you to turn, turn there if you have your Bible. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, if you have your pen, underline, underline another Jesus. If people come and proclaim to you, Another Jesus, a different Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it readily enough. What is he saying to them? You tolerate people coming to you, preaching a false gospel in the name of Jesus. This was happening in the first century. It's happening today. Verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Skip down to verse 12. And, And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission... They work on the same terms as we do. So these people are boasting of their mission. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves 
as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Wow! So beloved, my friends, we cannot afford to casually accept every teacher that makes great claims in the name of Jesus. We must stay awake. We must stay alert and sober-minded. We must test everything against Scripture, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is so important, it is so important that we know what our Bible says and that we test what we hear. Not by how it sounds, or how it feels, but testing it against the truth of God's word, God's unchanging word that endures forever. God's word will not be changed. Okay, back to Acts chapter 7. If you flip back over there, that'd be awesome. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 41, the second part of verse 41. So they made the calf. And they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This, again, exposes their pride. It was about what their hands accomplished. It was the work of their hands. And I believe this is at the very root of their evil and rebellion. This is a quote from Piper. John Piper. They derived their joy their fulfillment, their meaning, their sense of significance from what they could achieve with their own hands. They wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their own power and their own wisdom and their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious zeal. They got their joy from what they could achieve and not from God. And there is a huge difference. Amen. Our joy is in the finished work of Christ. Our joy is in what He has done. The fourth way they rejected the deliverer God sent. They worshipped the temple. This was outward religion of ceremony and ritual rather than truly knowing and walking with God. And he covers that in verses 47 through 50. Um, I'm not going to cover that in detail. The next way that they rejected the deliverer God sent is by persecuting the prophets and murdering Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets... Did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. See, these men in the council, they thought they were righteous. They couldn't see they were just another generation in a long line of rebellious, wicked people. Every generation arrogantly believes that they will write all the wrongs of the previous generations, apart from the help of Jesus. Nope. They won't. We're the same. Apart from Christ, we're the same as our fathers. They believed 
they would not have killed the prophets like their fathers did. Yet, when the righteous one came, the one who those prophets announced ahead of time, they betrayed him, they murdered him. They would not believe. So they were indeed just like their fathers. And before Christ, before Christ saved us, we were no different. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually destitute, hard-hearted, and unbelieving, while at the same time, deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are so righteous. The sixth way they rejected the deliverer God sent is through legalistic self-righteousness, through law-keeping. Verse 53, You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. They took great pride in their law-keeping, but no one can keep God's law perfectly, not even for one day. And the law that they boasted in testified of Jesus, and yet they rejected Jesus. To boil all of these different ways of rejecting God's deliverer, if we just boil them all down, the central theme, I think, that runs through all of them is prideful unbelief. Let's transition into the last part of the text here, verses 54 through 60. Boldly continue on in Christ, even when people reject you for it. That's what I want us to see from the life of Stephen here. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. See, Stephen had exposed their sin, rather than recognizing the wickedness of their sins against a holy God and repenting, they were furious. Have you ever had someone really, really angry with you? Uh, it can be very unsettling. Uh, but look how, Stephen, look how Stephen handles it. They're enraged. They're gnashing their teeth at him. Look at his response. Verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How is it that even in the face of their rage, and even knowing that he was in great danger, Stephen still had peace and joy? How is it that he was not undone by their rage? He was not set into a panic by their rejection. How is that possible? A couple observations from verses 55 and 56. First, he was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us. He transforms us from anxious and cowardly into bold and courageous. Another, um, another thing. First uh, Peter 4.14 shows us that there's a special way in which God's presence, God's Holy Spirit, empowers us and is with us in times of persecution. Just listen to this as I read it uh, from 1 Peter 4. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
So in those moments where we are persecuted, where we're rejected, the Holy Spirit dwells with us in a powerful and special way, enabling us to persevere, to be faithful, to be bold through that. And then look, at, look also at uh, what Stephen did with his focus and with his eyes. He gazed intently into heaven. His eyes were not focused on the responses of men, but on the things above. And so, he was not overwhelmed by the darkness and the hatred of men. Instead, he saw the glory of God. What did he see when he gazed intently into heaven? Can you imagine this? He saw God on his throne and Jesus at his right hand. And so he had confidence that Jesus is Lord over all, reigning forever no matter what his situation was. Does your situation seem too difficult? God is on his throne. Do you feel overwhelmed by the trials of life? God is on his throne. Have others wounded you? Or sinned against you? God is on his throne. When others reject you or criticize you, God is on his throne. When you see the glory of God, all these things are put into proper perspective. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ, Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I love this from Daniel 4.35. Speaking of God, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, according to his will, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. No one can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? God is in charge. God is on his throne. God is in control. We don't need to be afraid. Our job is to boldly continue on in Christ, even when people reject us for it. Our job is to be faithful, to keep on preaching the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The results are up to God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen shows, Stephen shows us what a glorious Savior we have. He can take an ordinary, weak, sinful person like me and transform us and change us so radically that we can love and forgive people even when their hearts toward us are filled with hatred and rage, even when they brutally murder us. This is amazing. This is a work of God. No man can do this. Do you think that Stephen's actions here brought glory to God? Do you think that God was pleased with Stephen's speech and the testimony of his life? Yes. He was. God was glorified here. This was, 
an incredible work of God. Even though, humanly speaking, this looks like a crushing defeat as they killed Stephen. It looks like a crushing defeat, but it is actually exactly the opposite. As we sang earlier in one of, the, in one of our songs during worship from Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Though the scripture does not record a single person in this account who repented at the preaching of Stephen. Though his hearers rejected him and hated him and killed him, Stephen was more than a conqueror. He leaves us with a wonderful example of the victorious Christian life. By the way, we don't always get to know the final impact of our witness. The full fruit of it may not be apparent right away because one person was there that day who did later repent. His name was Saul and he became the Apostle Paul and God used him mightily. So stand firm. Boldly continue on in Christ even when people reject you for it. Jesus is God's chosen deliverer. He is able. The death of Jesus on the cross is completely sufficient to rescue us. Some of us are still trying to earn it. And to be good enough, and he's saying, you can't. Just believe me. Just trust me. Trust in the work of Christ on the cross. We are saved to the uttermost through Him. Even if all the circumstances around us appear to be falling apart, even if nothing on earth appears to be going our way, even if we are lying on our deathbed staring death in the face, even if nothing in our circumstances changes, we are saved to the uttermost. Even if we don't understand what God is doing at that moment, we have eternal life. We have a restored right relationship with God. We are more than conquerors. We know the God of the universe. We have joy in Him. We have tasted His goodness and the glory of His presence. And we will see the fullness of His glory the moment we die or when Jesus comes again. So boldly continue on in Christ even when people reject you for it.